All right, that's our text, Isaiah 42, verses uh, 18 through 25, so make sure you're there in your Bible. The topic, God explains to Judah that on account of his fury with them, he would raise up Babylon as their captors and conquerors. The title of the message, I got a fury, and the only prescription is more captivity. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that... uh, We're heard by you because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We're absolutely certain, Lord, that we can come before the throne of mercy and grace and not only come before it, Lord, but boldly, you say. We want to mix boldness with humility, Lord, and and humble ourselves and let you know, Lord, that every good thing comes from you, that, that we find no goodness in ourselves, but what you have given us, what you've graced us with. Lord, we we want to hear from you. And having heard from you, Lord, uh, be able to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Inconceivable. Or how about this? I do not mean to pry, but you don't by any chance happen to have six fingers on your right hand. So many quotable quotes come from the Princess Bride. If you're unfamiliar, it tells the story of a swashbuckling farmhand named Wesley being accompanied by companions befriended along the way who must rescue his true love, Princess Buttercup, from the odious Prince Humperdinck. You know, rush right home and watch that, right? It's a solid story of love fueling a relentless pursuit of the one loved. As Wesley said... Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. There's a relentless pursuit of the one loved in our text in Isaiah. It is dissimilar to Wesley's in that the Lord is doing all the pursuing of a people whose love for him had grown cold. Frozen would be a better descriptor. He nevertheless remains undaunted and sacrifices to rekindle their passion. This isn't the first time the Lord went after the Jews. There are many other occasions in the Old Testament. And really, he's doing it right now in our own time as he has brought Israel back to their land, regathered them, but in unbelief. We talk about Israel being in their land in unbelief in that they uh, don't recognize still Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so the Lord is working with them to bring them to that salvation. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you see the Lord's great love for his beloved. And number two, you see the Lord going to great lengths for his beloved. Let's take a look at his love in verses 18 through 22. Isaiah wrote about events that would occur 150 years in his future. He was announcing a series of events we summarize as the Babylonian captivity. Babylon was not a world power, but it would become one. King Nebuchadnezzar would invade Jerusalem on three separate occasions. The last one would involve the destruction of Solomon's temple and the relocation to Babylon of most of the Jews. They would remain there for the next 70 years. How is that in any way romantic? Well, the Gentile nations of the Old Testament believe that victory or defeat depended on the strength of your gods. In chapter 36 of Isaiah, when Jerusalem was threatened by the Assyrian army, their spokesman said, 
Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharam? Indeed, where have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. And then there's this interesting passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 27. It says, the Lord himself addressed this, uh, rather, the passage goes like this, but I, the Lord, dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed, the Lord has not done this. So God would use Gentile nations to redirect his backslidden people, to get their attention, to get them back on track. But God dreaded that the nations would believe their gods were stronger than he was. Now, it's, it's not that he's being petty. The idea is that Israel was to be a messenger to the Gentile nations about the greatness of God and the goodness of God. But when they disobeyed and he had to raise up those nations against her, their mindset was, well, then our God must be greater than your God because only a, an inferior God is defeated. And so Babylon defeating Judah would be interpreted as their god Marduk defeating Jehovah. And so that's the real problem. That's the real issue. In our lives, if we give folks a testimony and then we backslide, they find out about it, what do they do? Do they say, oh, sign me up for biblical Christianity. That sounds great to me. No, they, they, the devil comes in and he says, see, they can't live up to it. They, it doesn't work. It's, it's a farce. It's a hypocrisy. You're okay. In fact, you're better off than they are uh, and all. And so that's what's going on in this nation-to-nation -nation situation. Mm -hmm. The Lord told the Jews ahead of time he was going to raise up Babylon as his tool. Even though they knew ahead of time, they didn't believe it. And when it happened, they said, why are you doing this to us? Love can inspire you to set aside all thoughts of what it's going to look like if you sacrifice for it. What did it look like when Jesus died on the cross? Because God so loved the world? Well, we don't have to guess because we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 39 down to verse 44, it says, those who passed by, uh, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels, the thieves who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Can you imagine talking about anyone this way? I mean, come on. You know, you're walking into Jerusalem and here's, here's some individual crucified, dying on the cross, cruel, horrible death, and you're hurling insults at that person? And then here we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, the God-man, and people are treating him this way. But we know that the cross was voluntary. It was something that Jesus signed up for, you might say, so that he could minister to our lives and 
be the savior of the whole world. Great love doesn't think about itself at all. Uh, and so, you know, the next time uh, you get a little bit upset about something or incensed about something, somebody takes advantage of you or speaks ill of you or just acts human towards you, uh, great love doesn't think about itself at all. So, uh, you know, and, and you can tell the extent of which you're thinking about yourself in terms of how angry you get sometimes, right? Come home, you say, oh, at work today, this happened. Well, in the whole scheme of things, it's not really a big deal. And so let it go and love people. Jesus, it says in the scripture, made himself of no reputation, Philippians 2, 7. It's in the middle of that great passage in Philippians 2 that talks about his mission to earth as the servant and accomplishing that mission. God the Son was willing to have his reputation ruined on earth and among spiritual entities in order to save you. Reputation, you know, sometimes we, we go too fast over that scripture about Jesus' reputation, but, um, you know, it, it's serious. Again, uh, do you really want to follow a God that was defeated by Jews and the Romans in the first century? Now, we understand, you know, what was going on, but if you approach this with a blank slate, you've never heard about the Lord, you've never heard about the Bible, and you say, hey, our God died. Well, that sounds weird, doesn't it? And so you have to really get into the gospel. And, you, you know, you're a sinner. You're going to die. You know where that comes from? It comes from sin in the Garden of Eden. Somebody died in your place. That was Jesus Christ. And he did it because uh, he had such great love, he could make himself of no reputation. You ever wonder what the holy angels thought? What a mind-blowing thing it was to, to watch Jesus crucified. They knew who he was from eternity past. And they knew what they could do. Jesus one time said, I could call legions of angels to help me right now. One angel in the book of Isaiah killed 185,000 Assyrians as they slept overnight. Imagine what a legion of angels could do to Rome and to the nation of Israel. And I, I mean, you know, it must have taken all the restraint that they had to not say, hey, I, I'm going to go down there and do something. You can't spit on the Lord like that. You can't flog the Lord like that. You can't mock my Lord like that. What is wrong with you people? I'm a, you're all dead and stuff. And God said, no, it's all, it's all right. Don't worry about the reputation. Something great is happening. Verse 18, hear you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. The Jews in Judah were spiritually blind and deaf. It was by choice. They chose to worship gods instead of God. Why do people do that? Uh, lots of reasons, I suppose, but one is that sin is pleasurable. It says so right in Hebrews 11.25. Sin is pleasurable, but it goes on to say only for a season. And so a lot of people start into sin. It feels good. It seems good. Uh, but that season passes. Many of you would have this testimony and could give your testimony of you know, substance abuse or uh, different ways that you used to live and the things that came upon you. It always started good, right? And, and exciting, and then it ended, you know, in the tank. I, Matthew Perry is following a little bit about his story. Uh, you know, he's, he's dead. Uh, said he started drinking at age nine uh, and, and 
drank for the rest of his life and had lots of problems with different substances and whatnot. I remember uh, the first time I really drank was at the eighth, after eighth grade party, going into the ninth grade. I forget the house we were at. You know, some, one of the kids was having a party, and uh, they served, just they snuck some little, you know, a little bit of beer, you know, for I think one can for 85 people or so. But, you know, when you're, how old are you in going into junior high? You're, what, 15, 14, 15, something like that? I don't know. I can't remember. I can't even remember being that age. But anyway, uh, I remember that I got this little red cup with some beer in it, and I got drunk, you know, and it was all buzz. You know, you're like, oh, this is so fun. You know, and stuff, and it wasn't so fun a few years later when, you know, when you're in trouble and doing terrible things and just ruining your life and all. And so uh, that, that's what happens. Sin is enticing. And we need to be honest about that and say, hey, you're going to get ensnared. If you do this, you're going to think, hey, this is great. What's the problem? Why is God so weird? But you need to look at the end result of it. The whole time of their backsliding, the Lord was commanding them, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. They could have if they would have. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, saying in Matthew 23, 37, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. Jesus doesn't say you were not able. There are theologies out there that, that the conclusion you come to is that, well, they weren't able to repent because God had not predestined for that to happen. He had determined that they would do this. There was nothing they could do about it. But Jesus didn't like that theology, and he very particularly uses the word willing. If you're unable to do something, that's one thing. If you're unwilling to do something, that's on you. And so the Lord basically said, I gave them enough light to see who I was and what I was doing. I did the miracles of the Messiah. I spoke the words of the Messiah. I fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures hundreds of different ways. And they chose to disobey and to put me to death. There are blind and deaf churchgoers in the New Testament. They attended the church in Laodicea. They merited a letter from the Lord. He told them, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. I always, you know, we just think about coming to church on a Sunday morning. Word has spread that Jesus Christ has written a letter. Not the Apostle Paul, as great as that would be. Not John, not James. Jesus. He's going around sharing these letters, you know, that Jesus wrote. You guys ready for this? I'm going to open the letter and here's what the Lord has to say to you. I think that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But I love you, and that's why I'm disciplining you. Oh, the ushers would come forward now and receive the offering. No, I mean, it's just totally, it's a total shock, right? Because blind people don't real these spiritual blindness, you don't realize you're blind. You don't realize you're deaf. It's gradual over a period of time and of not seeking the Lord, of not listening to the Lord. Usually people want to argue about whether the Laodiceans were Christians or not, were they saved or not. I guess if I had to say something, I'd say they were mostly unsaved by the way Jesus talks to them. And because even today there are churches that are mostly unsaved. Their members are mostly unsaved. You know, but it's, it's always a mix in real life. 
I think the point here is that the Lord pursued them with rebuke and discipline for love's sake. He he didn't take on the idea. He's not trying to teach us whether they were saved or not and how they became, you know, or why they didn't become Christians. He just says, look, this is your condition, but I am pursuing you because I love you, and it's, this is like a discipline that's coming on you, but you need to repent, and I will protect you and keep you. Now, remember Jesus told them he was about to vomit on account of their lukewarmness, he said. He said, you're not cold or hot, you're lukewarm, and now I want to vomit because of the way that you are walking and living. Nevertheless, he was also knocking on their door. Remember, this is that passage where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open the door and let me in, I will come in and do what? Sup with him. I got to thinking, the last time I was vomiting and felt that sick, I didn't feel like eating, right? I I didn't say, hey, you know, well, I think I'm done now. Let's get the greasiest hamburger we can get, you know. I mean, it's just, it's a weird situation. And so Jesus says, even if, Even if you make me feel like vomiting because you're so miserable, poor, wretched, and blind, and you haven't, you won't accept me and you won't repent after all I've done, even then, I still want to have a relationship with you. And if you will let me in and turn your heart around, turn to God from your idols, I will receive you and bless you and love you, and all the former things will pass away. Your sin will be as far as the east is from the west, buried in the sea of forgetfulness. We'll start from scratch and we'll walk together in love. Uh, a lot of times we don't finish the story in, about Laodicea. The bar, uh, according to the Biblical Archaeological Society, and I quote, the church at Laodicea became the seat of a Christian bishop and Christian council was held there in the 4th century A.D., Archaeologists have discovered about 20 ancient Christian chapels and churches at that site. The largest church at Laodicea took up an entire city block and dates to the beginning of the 4th century. What a a great turnaround, right? What an amazing thing the grace of God is and can accomplish when folks repent and walk with the Lord. In a more recent excavation, they discovered a sign that said in Greek, Parakalisi tau Golgotha, It translates in English as Calvary Chapel. And so, actually that last part wasn't true. I just, verse 19, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? One thing you need to realize in Isaiah is that he will call Jesus the Savior, my servant, He also calls the believing remnant of Israel, the the believers that are within the larger nation, my servant. And he sometimes calls the nation as a whole, my servant. And and so you just have to figure out which it is by the context. And here it's obvious the nation he's addressing. Israel's calling was to be the messenger of God to the world. The word perfect here relates to the message, not the messenger. Individually, And corporately, believers are to share the gospel and thereby shine God's light into the kingdom of darkness. The unsaved are blind by birth, dead in their sins. If we choose blindness by disobeying God, who will go to them with the light of the glory of God? So you're a believer, I'm a believer. If we start going blind, 
If we start going deaf because we're drawn to sin and away from the Lord and we're you know, doing that kind of stuff, then who is going to go to those who are actually spiritually blind and deaf who need to hear the word of God in order to be saved? Whoever came and shared the gospel with you God bless them for not being backslidden, for not uh, you know, abandoning their uh, walk with the Lord. They were there to be used by God at a time when you were ready to hear from God. And I want to be that person, don't you? I don't, I don't want to have an opportunity to pass to share Christ and to have somebody come into eternity, to have their entire life for eternity changed because I have begotten, be, let myself get blind and deaf to the gospel. When a believer chooses sin, it affects everyone you come into contact with. It hinders the work of the gospel. It's not just a personal thing. You stumble other Christians, and by stumble, I mean that you lead them into sin, and it affects their walk, and there's a domino effect, right? And so, uh, walk with the Lord for the sake of others. When you're contemplating walking away or sinning or you wake up in the morning and say, what am I going to do today or whatever, just you know, say, I'm going to walk with you, Lord, because I really do love my family and my friends and my co-workers and all. And I do want you to give me an opportunity to minister to them. And so, uh, you know, Lord, I've, I've, I'm struggling. Or, you know, help me, but, you know, help me to do the right thing. Verse 20, seeing many things you don't observe, opening the ears, but you don't hear. Judah was at great advantage. God had given Jews his law to observe. As his chosen nation, their ears were opened by God to hear his law, but they chose not to hear it, mostly by going after other gods. Every letter Jesus wrote in the Revelation ends with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our ears were opened and we received the gospel. It is then up to us to listen to the things of God and not the things of the world and then to present those to other people. And that's how the church goes on. It's really, on the one hand, the church is a bad plan because it depends on you and me in a sense. Now, obviously, it depends on the Lord. He's the one that is building his church. You know, you understand what I mean. But the Lord says, hey, I want to partner with you in this endeavor. I want you to come alongside me and you help me by being my servant. Uh, and the entire, uh, you know, salvation of the world, you know, will depend on uh, the two of us working together. And you think, wow, that's a, that's a heavy weight. Uh, it's not because you have the Holy Spirit and you yield to him. But uh, if you choose not to do that, it does hinder God's plans and he has to make different plans. We tend to disparage God's law. We are quick to argue that we're not under law, but under grace. That's true, of course. But God said his law is perfect. No man could keep it perfectly until the God-man did, Jesus. But Israel and Judah were expected to live by it and share it as something beautiful and to be desired more than pure, fine gold. And so the, the thing about God's law, yes, it reveals what a sinner you are in the sense that there's constant sacrifice. If, if a sacrifice of an animal could save you, they wouldn't need to do it every day and every year and on and on. You wouldn't need to bring animals to sacrifice. So you're being shown that you're a sinner in need of salvation, 
But you're also being shown that that salvation is, is brought to you by God, and one day uh, this system will be ended and you will have a new heart uh, and, you know, and a, a new life and, and power and all of that. And so there's really nothing wrong with the law. It's to be revered. And, and Jesus, you know, they asked us, hey, what, what's the most important part of the law, the greatest commandment? And he said, well, love your neighbor as you, or love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. He wasn't saying, I came to abolish the law. You don't need to worry about that anymore. He says, no, I came to fulfill the law, and this is how you do it. And, he, and how you do it is not by really observing anything. It's just by being the, uh, the way Lord wants you to be. You, you get saved and you're filled with the Spirit. And if I'm filled with the Spirit and if I'm walking with God, I love God with all my heart and I love others as I love myself, right? And so you, you end up fulfilling the law and it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Instead of sharing God's law with Gentiles, they were going to orgies with them. I mean, it's kind of blunt, but that's what was going on. When, you, when, these, when these people talk about idols and idolatry, they were going to the high places in the mountains or to the temples where the deities of these pagan nations would be worshipped in the most rank uh, ways possible with tremendous sexual immorality. And so uh, instead of sharing God's law, and saying, hey, this is the purity of God. God is a holy being, and he, he's a righteous being, and, and he can give you his righteousness. We can walk in holiness and prepare ourselves for heaven. They're saying, hey, what time's the orgy? You know, I mean, we, you come to church with us this morning, we'll go to the orgy tonight. You know, we'll, we'll, we have to experience all these things. And, you know, it'd be like us never inviting unsaved individuals to church, but going with them to all of their carnal entertainments. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not accusing anybody of doing that. I'm just saying, hey, this is, this is what Isaiah is talking about. And then he says in verse 21, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. The law reveals God's righteousness, his holiness. If the Jews failed as his servants to participate, God must intervene to bring them back. Hey, you guys are going to show the world what I'm like. And if you're not doing that, I have to intervene get you back on track. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. For they are prey and no one delivers, plunder and no one says restore. This is a glimpse of life being besieged and then conquered by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Despite God's efforts to reach them, there was no movement to repent. They didn't care to be restored. They kept blaming God saying, why are you doing this to us? This is your fault. You promised you'd keep us. And yet the Lord was up front with them and open with them saying, I've already told you why I'm doing it. You're in sin. The rise of Babylon and the sacking of Jerusalem should have come as no surprise to any Jew. God had revealed it to an inquisitive prophet named Habakkuk. Habakkuk said, hey, we're a wicked nation. You need to do something about it. And the Lord says, well, I've got a plan, but you won't like it. Habakkuk says, try me, I'm mature. He says, okay, I'm going to raise up the nation of Babylon, and they're going to take you into captivity. You know what? I don't like it. How can you use a nation more wicked than us to judge us? And Habakkuk retreated to his tower, to the watchtower, until he finally understood that we trust the Lord. You know, if everything fails, we trust him to bring us through this 
and to be consistent with his promises. And, you know, God is going to have to discipline us, and this is how he's going to do it. It'd be like us saying, hey, Lord, you know, why are you this and that? And the Lord say, well, you, you guys are pretty wicked. And so I'm going to raise up something even more wicked to judge you. Jeremiah's ministry was to tell the people to surrender to Babylon because it was God's will. He says, hey, it's too late now to repent. Surrender and things will go well with you. And they said, yeah, here's, here's what we're trying. We're going to try and kill you. How's that? We don't like that message. And then Hosea, another prophet, a contemporary of Isaiah's, at God's leading, he married an unfaithful woman and then took her back. It was a painful but precious object lesson for the unfaithful Jews. And so God... Uh, loves and he does things when he needs to in order to bring you back under the banner of his love. Second, verse 23 through 25, you see the Lord going to great lengths for his beloved. The moment Judah began to drift in her history, God would call them back. In the law, God told the Jews that he would withhold blessings and replace them with buffetings and sufferings. And by this, they could understand they were not in God's will. Now, the Jews, uh, for lack of a better word, they, they were more of a physical people than we are, the church, in that God said, I'm going to give you land, real estate in the Middle East. You're going to farm that land. Uh, and uh, when you're walking with me, that land will produce abundantly. You'll have all the rain you need and all the crops you need, so much so that you can let that land lay fallow the seventh year. And so when the season would come for rain and it didn't rain, a Jew could know, ooh, it's not global warming or anything. It's not a weather pattern. It's God saying, you're not walking with me. I am withholding my blessing from you. Figure it out and come back into my good graces. And we don't have that. You know, God hasn't given us a, a land. I mean, we're, and, but we're better off. You know, we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And, and so, uh, but they could know that they were out of the will of God. And if that didn't work, he would send prophets to plead with them. In the New Testament, I think it's Stephen says, but you killed most of the prophets. And so they didn't heed the prophets. And then finally, he could send a nation to discipline them. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all of these, God said, are going to be disciplining Israel for her sin. That last one is super bothersome. It seems extreme to send a wicked nation against Israel. It is extreme, but it's necessary. Their trajectory towards self-destruction must be stopped in order for God's love to break through by the coming of Jesus. So if we sit here, anybody says, hey, I object to God using an extreme measure like, uh, uh, you know, uh, captivity. Uh, a lot of Jews died. The others were taken captivity for seven years. I object to that. And then you, you say, well, wait a minute. If there are no Jews, then there's no Jesus. And they're on a trajectory to where there aren't going to be any Jews because they are bringing destruction upon themselves. They're not walking with the Lord. They're intermarrying with the other peoples and all. And so God says, I'm going to step in. And when you put it that way, you know, if you're at the board meeting where this was planned and God says, hey, do you, how far do you want me to go in making sure that 
Jews, that the nation of Israel brings Jesus into the world. All the way, Lord, I mean, I'm in. Whatever you need to do, you have to do because this is a, a huge problem and issue. And so in verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways and were not obedient to his law. Today we have an overused expression. We say that someone owns doing something, right? In the case of Babylon, God owned what he was going to do. As I said, he told Habakkuk, and I quote, for indeed I am raising up the Babylonians, a bitter, hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. God said, I'm going to do this to save you. Did your dad or mom ever say to you, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me? You know, at the time, it didn't seem so, right? It seemed like, I think I got most of the hurt here. God, though, uh, you know, after you become a parent, you understand, right? And it really does hurt. No, no parent wants to hurt their child in any way. But there's certain things that need to be corrected. And, um, you know, after, a parent, after being a parent, you know that. God will, and for lack of a better word, I'm going to use the word hurt, Hurt us if he must. He will hurt us if he must. I told you the story before about one of the times that my brother Richard, my older brother, saved my life. I mean, literally saved my life. Pulled me out of drowning one time. And, but this time, we were riding our bikes, 10 speeds. Actually, mine was a Royce Union 12 speed, the superior bike. Uh, but we were racing through streets in San Bernardino, and I just kind of lost my head. I guess I forgot where we were. And I was going really fast. You know, bikes don't stop really fast and stuff. And I didn't realize I was headed out into traffic on, on one of the busier streets in San Bernardino, coming off of an off street. And uh, there was a car. Uh, anyway, I would have been creamed. Uh, maybe I'd die, maybe not. Maybe I'd be better off. Who knows? But uh, no, I'm just trying to be stupid. Uh, but, uh, or maybe this is what made me stupid. But anyway, so. As I was, go I was going like, you know, a million miles an hour on my bike, and Richard's behind me, and just at the last minute, he crashed his bike into my bike. It's like all slow motion, you know, you're all in your head, and you're, everything's in your bikes. The bikes are all ruined. I mean, it was, it was a bad crash. But he thought it would be more loving to crash into me and save my life than just watch me thrown by a car 50 feet in the air. And so, so sometimes you hurt the ones you love. I mean, you really do. You actually hurt them. Because, you, you, you know, I, I can just see my dad saying, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you crash your bike into his bike? Well, he did. And, and I lived. And I appreciate that. So how far gone was Judah? And what do you need to do to a people that says, I, I don't even know what's going on? It says here, this is a great verse. He poured on him the fury of his anger, verse 25, and the strength of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. God here describes Judah as a man surrounded by flames of conquest, maybe even on fire, but who didn't know he was. Picture a person on fire. You run to his aid with an appropriate extinguisher, and you're just about ready to hit him with it, and he says, stop, stop. I don't want you to ruin my shirt. What? 
You're on fire. No, no, I'm not. I mean, just leave me alone. I'm fine. Well, what do you do? Do you walk away? And when the police get there, you say, what happened to Gene? We were going to save him, but he said not to because he loves the shirt. What? You might have just done something criminal. And so he said, no, you've you got to do what you got to do, right? And so God, that's what God's saying. He goes, these people, I, I took their reign away. I sent them prophets. Now they're in captivity, and they still don't know what's going on. And so he, he has to take it to the limit with them. He goes to the greatest lengths to save his beloved people. If invasion and decades of captivity seem cruel, they're not. They're appropriate. Now, in our lives, God disciplines those he loves, right? So if you're going through something, if you feel as though God's mercy is very severe in your life, it might be. And, you know, take a look at that and say, okay, Lord, so what are you really trying to say to me? What is happening here? Now, I'm not saying that every illness or sickness or trial is from the Lord because you're in sin. That, obviously, we don't believe that. But there are lessons that the Lord wants to teach each of us. And he sees the, director, the trajectory, rather, of each of our lives. And sometimes he has to make a course correction for us, right? I mean, all of us, if we're honest, we've, we've you know, veered off course from time to time. And sometimes we, we, you know, get way off course and it's harder to come back. And, and there's a lot more hurt in our lives and in the lives of others. And sometimes we say, Lord, why did you let me do that? You know, why didn't you stop me? And if, you know, I'm sure the Lord would want to say, well, you know, here are 15 things I did to try and stop you until I finally had to do this, which kind of hurt you. And you know what, Gene? It hurt me more than it hurt you. It really does. Because God you know, loves more than I do. He loves more than you do. And he loves me and he loves you. And he will, in that great love, go to any lengths to come after you, to bring you back, to keep you in the fold. We serve a great and awesome God. It's not worth it to sin. It's seasonal, right? Sin is pleasurable for a season. We're not seasonal, seasonal people. You know, and you buy plants at the, you know, I, I, I've been doing a lot of planting in our backyard, mo mostly replanting, I guess, because everything I plant dies. But anyway, uh, you know, you look, is this a perennial? Is it an annual? Where does it have sunlight or no sunlight and stuff? We are uh, not seasonal. You know, we, we don't sin for a season, then walk with God, then sin for, oh, what, what season is this? It's a sin season. Whenever, you know, this time of year, whenever you change your batteries, you know, in your smoke detector, sin. Uh, no, we don't live like that. We, we want to walk with the Lord on into eternity. Nothing that you're giving up in this life can compare to what's happening in the next life. And Christians, you know, sometimes we're just losing it. The only example I, I'll give you and then we'll quit. Um, I hope it makes sense. But a lot of times, years ago, you know, I've been, I don't know, 30-some years teaching and counseling people and stuff. Doesn't make me right all the time, just 99% of the time. But anyway, uh, but, you know, I used to be able to talk to couples, young couples, old couples. And I'd say, hey, okay, so you want a divorce. You, you know, you're having problems. Stay together for the sake of your children. Just, you know, your children, they will be hurt by this. And uh, people used to take that to heart. 
they didn't always stay together, but they took it to heart. They said, you know, I love my children more than I love myself. Right? I mean, you, don't, you would say that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't anybody say that? Do you love yourself more than your children? Yeah. Of course I do. They're a bummer. <laughs> I wish I'd never had children. No, nobody says that. Nobody sane. You say, of course I love my children more than I love myself. Do you think this might hurt them? Oh, no, it'll be better in the long run. Well, in some cases, maybe, but not in most. And look, if you've had a divorce and remarriage, or 10 of them, I'm not here judging you. I mean, each case is different. This is a general example, okay? Don't go out of here crying. But that's the idea. Now, when I tell people, hey, stay together for your children, what are you talking about? I've read some articles that says children are better off. They're never better off, when they can, especially if they don't understand what's going on, especially if all, there's no biblical reason for what you're doing. You're just being selfish. And I think sometimes people say, well, yeah, I, I am doing this for myself. And, you know, I'm sorry about what it might do to my children, but I have a life too. And so, look, all of us in all the areas of our life, we, we need to believe that God is right and that he has a path for us to walk on. We're going to walk, and when we get to heaven, Whatever God seemed to withhold from us or wherever we could have gone or been or done or whatever, so what? And you say, well, I don't want people to think I'm a fool. Ah, now we're getting back to your reputation, aren't we? Ooh, Jesus made himself of no reputation for you and you're worried that you're going to miss out on something. What are you going to miss out on? True love? True love is from Jesus, Right? And the rest of it is serving him. And so I don't know if that ministers to anybody this morning. Maybe somebody needed to hear that. But um, I know all of us need to hear that the base problem that we have is selfishness. Where did that come from? Where did that came from being selfish? What do we do about selfishness? We look at the Lord who was selfless, died on the cross for us. But even before he died on the cross, he came as a man. Well, God from eternity limits himself in a human body, sets aside his properties of deity to walk as a man. Crazy stuff, right? The least we could do is obey him.